The Airline Business Podcast is sponsored by Panasonic Avionics. Hello and welcome to the Airline Business Podcast, discussing key news and trends in the global airline sector. This time, European consolidation heads north with Air France KLM moving for SAS and what next for the industry's efforts to decarbonise. My name's Graham Dunn, Executive Editor at Flight Global, and joining me as ever is Airline Business Editor Lewis Harper. Hi, Lewis. Hi, Graham. How are you? Yes, very good. Very good. We've both been on the road a little bit over these uh, past few weeks, and it's been a really interesting time for the airline industry, hasn't it? It has, yes. Um, inevitably, when you're on a, at a conference, um, you know, really concentrating on a particular subject another story will will break and um you kind of wish you were there to cover that but yeah it's certainly um uh interesting time in terms of consolidation obviously it's a theme we've talked about a reasonable amount coming out of covid but i think we're we're starting to see um it ramping up even more in europe at the moment yes and it's very interesting the uh the recent development of course is that Air france klm has emerged as a potential uh investor in sas so that's part of the financial restructuring package and a consortium that has been put together to do that. And Air France KLM has emerged as a uh, taking a 19.9% stake in SAS, which uh, I mean, the deal is still to be um, to go through the restructuring process. SAS is in the middle of a, a Chapter 11 financial restructuring. So that element is still to come. But I think what's interesting, I mean, this kind of caught us a little bit by surprise i think but it certainly caught me a bit by surprise because you almost had two stories going on you have the sas and its financial restructuring and you have uh european consolidation efforts and i hadn't really put two and two together that the two might meet in this way no i think we'd um been very much looking south i think in europe you know understandably given we got um eater with lufthansa we've got air europa with ieg and then of course as we talked about recently we've got you know, TAP now that that process kicking off. So I think we were sort of looking in the wrong direction, maybe. And, and like you say, um, perhaps because of you know, the depth of SAS's troubles, um, it felt like maybe there was, you know, that ne- wasn't necessarily on, on the table as immediate options. So, you know, despite the fact I think Ben Smith, obviously, a Mayor France KLM chief executive, um, had talked about, you know, the, the group looking at options and he had named TAP in, 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 in that sense as well. Um, was um it wasn't one we we necessarily saw coming and it, it's an intriguing one certainly with SAS I mean SAS I think it's fair to say is has been a bit of a friendless airline maybe in the region compared with a lot of others so it's not part of one of the big groups it's not part of any of the big joint ventures like um you know the one world one for example um across the transatlantic so and it's uh, got a quite a long history of low margins and and challenges with unions and its cost base and, and all this. So it did take us a bit by surprise. And I think it's fair to say, I mean, if Air France KLM does eventually become, you know, majority owner of that business, it's it's taking on a few challenges. Uh, yeah, definitely so. And, and I mean, one of the reasons it's interesting is partly because SAS feel, has felt very embedded in Star Alliance. It was a, a founding member of Star Alliance. It, you know, off and on, there's been, you know, various dalliances and reported moves over over potentially Lufthansa being an investor in that carry. We haven't seen much of that over the past decade or so, but certainly in the 2000s, that was 
that seemed a, a a sort of combination it never never really emerged but obviously SAS was a, a, a significant part of Star Alliance and so you know that part of it you know maybe one of the reasons it's a bit of a surprise I mean we have three airline groupings and in fact we we have three uh, three big air, uh, European airline groupings and three alliances and they're obviously interconnected in in some way obviously Air France Kalim with Sky Sky Team Lufthansa with Star Alliance and IAG with One World and from a network carrier perspective at least in terms of the Nordic regions there's really only been SAS and Finnair and SAS is involved with with Star Alliance and Finnair with One World so Sky Team has never really had much of a presence in that sector so it is quite interesting that one of the sort of the byproducts of consolidation and we're seeing this across some other moves is that you are getting some movements of uh, of camps in terms of that alliance sphere and uh, it will be quite interesting what uh, star alliance then decides this means for it in uh, the nordic region it will yeah i think it's our fault for um i think we've written about you know two or three years ago about how the, the alliances are no longer about membership and it's all about the technical and work going on behind the scenes and all this and i think since then we as you say it's um there have been a few significant moves there but yeah no it's it's certainly right and um you can sort of see from guy team's point of view there with iag and um, lufthansa making these moves you you sort of see um the air france and klm businesses sort of being sandwiched between these two sort of expanding groups and you can sort of see the logic in um, Air France you know wanting to make these moves I think there's a there's kind of a consensus that Ben Smith has done a, a good job with Air France KLM certainly since the the end of the pandemic he's the margins are improving you know they're, they're coming out of it fairly confidently so it's I guess in some ways not a surprise they want to be making these kind of quite um, proactive moves there but yeah the way it shakes out alliance wise will be intriguing and you know with certainly with the eater deal as well there's there's all sorts of uh, moving parts around alliances in Europe in a way I guess that um we we perhaps didn't think was was coming as I say two or three years ago um but yeah um, SAS as a business as I mentioned before it certainly won't be without its challenges and I think um, if, you know Ben Smith thought that you know getting Air France KLM back on track was tough I think um if they're eventually in a position to do that SAS that's certainly going to be um uh, a challenge and I think obviously part of SAS's challenges historically have been um, around the, the ownership structure meaning they're you know tied to having two relatively close hubs in in Stockholm and Copenhagen which obviously isn't necessarily ideal so um, you know a shift towards if, if eventually we've got you know majority ownership of, of an airline group maybe um, a shift towards um maybe one or other of those hubs is um would be a logical move um um and obviously yeah, air france klm will know better than most anyway about dealing with the the politics of, of government ownership as well so that that um it's an interesting one i think um you know the potential for transavia as well in that region will be an interesting thing to watch if this does eventually get approved um we know that norwegian have you know been quietly expanding in that region the low cost sphere i don't think they have masses of competition there the the kind of pan-european low-cost carriers i think struggled a bit with costs in in that market with with airport fees and things like that so they haven't necessarily made huge strides into that market so that you know it wouldn't be a surprise if air france klm see see transavia as an option into that market as well 
one little small side point, uh, I think, around kind of the opportunities in, in Scandinavia for Air France Kellum. I think it, I think it's quite interesting. You've seen it with IAG and, you know, I think you, one of the things you do see with these pan-European groups is this kind of, uh, you know, trading off the the hubs of, of the of the member airlines. Mm-hmm. Now, with Air France KLM, it's at the moment, it, you know, is it the Paris hub or is it the Amsterdam hub? And we all know what's going on at, at Amsterdam in terms of the potential cutting back of capacity there. There's a whole uh, legal process around that in terms of the Dutch government. Admittedly, the Dutch government, which is which is collapsed. So we, we wait what happens to that policy and there's a legal challenge around it but introducing a cap on the flight departures out of uh Schiphol airport going forward uh based around uh, countering noise levels now obviously having more <laughs> uh, more bases within the group you know provides more options to add capacity and and direct capacity but it also gives <laughs> it gives the group you know maybe strengthens their hand a little bit in terms of those uh, political negotiations being able to say to uh, the Dutch government well actually do you know what we mm-hmm. might move more capacity out to Copenhagen or Stockholm or or who knows um, uh, Lisbon. Yeah you're right yeah and that that certainly is I mean I would say that um, to do that they've probably chosen another market where if you were to guess where there might be the next move by government <laughs> to cap capacity on sustainability grounds <laughs> you probably would be looking towards those sort of SAS markets certainly and I know that obviously the, the kind of flight shaming movement has its sort of origins in in that region but but yeah it does make a lot of sense if you know if if KLM is staring at a future where it's structurally having to be forced to be a smaller operator from that big hub, then certainly you're right. It strengthens Air France KLM's hand as a business in more than one way, certainly, yeah, in terms of just simply having outlets for its capacity, but also, you know, politically, as you say, you know, the Dutch government and whatever the Dutch government becomes has um, has um, made these moves. I, I guess there is a, a tipping point where I don't think many governments would deny the, the advantages that aviation brings, so economically, socially, that kind of thing. And the airlines do still have a bit of power in that regard, particularly if they can simply move capacity elsewhere. And we know that certainly Michael O'Leary is particularly, um, <laughs> in the low cost sphere, is particularly well versed at that kind of um, manoeuvring when, when, it, when it suits Ryanair. As you say, there's also the whole regulatory picture and sphere of getting these over the line now you know in the in the air france klm sas uh move i mean there's a, a process which is you know around the financial restructuring but because it's only 19.9 percent that side of it becomes much easier there are provisions under which um you know over time and uh, after a couple of years or so where it, you know there would be a potential route path for air france kellen to take a controlling interest but it, it's you know at this stage it is just a minority holding and we've seen that with iag and air europa now you know that's a an intriguing one because you know it's a deal that was in, in play before the pandemic um and iag and uh, has had a couple of goes at trying to get this to work and the pandemic obviously uh created one problem and you know there's there's elements in structuring that deal which make it more challenging but then there's also the regulatory picture and you know you come back to what kind of sacrifices does an airline think it is it is worth making in order to mm. uh, to, to consolidate? And uh, with ITA Lufthansa making its bid there again initially, 
uh, a minority, but uh, with a, with an option to move to uh, a majority. Uh, it was interesting. I mean, Carsten Spohr was is sort of, you know, when you look at the low cost picture and the strength of Ryanair in Europe, there's no grounds for regulatory approval not to come on that. But, we, you know, we did see, you know, some reports emerging that the the Italian Italian government was a, a bit frustrated at the pace and maybe the direction of the European Commission process looking into that deal as well. So, you know, I think this is one of the one of the bigger challenges around there is actually completing any of this consolidation in, in Europe, you know, even within the European Union, which is at least a, a single common aviation area. But, you know, trying to complete those mergers is not straightforward. No, and I think there's there's a kind of a global thing there as well. I suppose we, you know, when we look to the, the US with um, you know, JetBlue and the Northeastern Alliance and obviously not good noises coming out about um, the spirit deal as well at the moment. So um, there, there is, I think, there's a broader theme, certainly Europe and North America around. And also, obviously, Latin America, we've got the Abra Group being developed there with the Goa and Avianca at the centre of it. These things have never been easy, but certainly that the noises that are coming out of government in a lot of these cases aren't particularly encouraging towards them happening. And that is a, a theme to keep an eye on. It's difficult to know where that comes from, whether there's, you know, there's a general mood of globally away a bit from sort of globalisation. Maybe individual governments are a bit more conscious of the value of some of these strategic assets being held locally, for example. I mean, that obviously isn't the case in, in in the domestic US market. But certainly, yeah, it's a, a theme to keep an eye on. I don't think anyone is um, going to be making assumptions about these things getting over the line, as you say, um, particularly if they, they come with quite big sacrifices on in terms of um, slots at key airports, because clearly a lot of the value in that consolidation will come from having those, those slots and um, those network options um, as, as a group. But yeah, it's certainly... Um, what's playing out in Europe and the impact it's having on alliances and you say, as you say and um, is going to be uh, something to watch and um, it's quite interesting that you know there's been a bit of surprise here it feels like you know a lot of the low hanging fruit's gone so we know TAP now is in a process and we don't know who will end up with that but it's it's certainly this um, a phase we're going through now of truly becoming a bit more US like in Europe I think where you know there aren't really going to be any um any significant maybe uh, network legacy network carriers left maybe apart from Finnair, for example but you know there aren't going to be many left who aren't part of one of the big groups and that's um that is certainly a thing some people have been predicting for a while it'll be interesting to watch whether that spills over into the low cost sector of course where um you know we have you know it's fair to say probably three decent sized pan-european low-cost carriers and i think a lot of people will will talk about there being maybe space for two and even if that consolidation might involve, you know, a movement of one of those into into one of the airline groups. Um, but maybe I'm getting carried away by this <laughs> uh, this minority stake that Air France KLM is looking to take. <laughs> so TAP Air Portugal, a lot of eyes now turn to that as the airline privatisation privatization in play. Portugal has now passed the decree to make that happen, although we don't know the, the full details on that process now. And I think it becomes in, interesting, I think, yeah, you know, to some extent, for an airline, it's integrating an airline into a group, whether that is full merge or even just uh, as a strategic partner in some kind, in some way, you know, it is a lot of work. It is quite complicated. And, and I think there was an elegance to the, that period where 
IAG was working on bringing Air Europa in and um, Lufthansa was working on bringing ITA in. Both of those two carriers are, are SkyTeam carriers, ITA and uh, Air Europa. So uh, they would move alliances, which then seemed to make things very neat that Air France KLM didn't have anything else going on. Um, so it would be in pole position for TAP. But obviously Air France KLM does have some other bits going on. But, mm. you know, I think it. It is interesting. All three carriers have said they remain interested and have expressed interest. You know, I, th- I think you'd expect that it would be a weird head of a European airline group who immediately dismissed someone <laughs> before they've even had the conversations with it. So, you know, there's still some time to be seen exactly what happens. You know, it does feel as though Air France, KLM and SkyTeam could do with that uh, Southern European partner. I mean, they have Tarom uh, in the group, Air France. It, you know, it it just changes the dimension of it, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And as you say, there there is a perhaps um, just standing back at it, you know, TAP does seem logical for Air France, Kel. And I think it wouldn't, when you talk about the regulatory challenges, it wouldn't be difficult to, to suggest that the path for IAG might be quite challenging given that the, you know they're already making deeper moves into Spain with with Air Europa um you talk about the Iberian Peninsula you you'd think that you know then going for Portugal's flag carrier might throw up some you know particular challenges for them not saying it'd be impossible but but as you say particularly with the when you look at the the um the alliance mix and everything and of course yeah maybe everything does come back to alliances because of the Air Europa deal maybe partly driven by LATAM's um, mm-hmm. shift away from one world towards Sky Team itself. And uh, in doing that, of course, IAG lost, they, they still obviously partner in some ways, but they lost uh, the alliance partner there, um, the biggest player in Latin America that, that had significant you know, services into Europe. So, and then connections onwards, I guess, in, in the Latin America region. So, yeah, there, there, there's a lot um, at play here. and. Um, and yeah, TAP will will be it'll be fascinating to watch that play out. And we say all this, of course, and um, it will be some fourth party we haven't thought of <laughs> that buys them. But, uh, yes, well, it was um, it was um, it was David Neelman's Atlantic Gateway who bought them course, uh, yeah. previously. It'll be interesting. I mean, I suppose competition. It does depend how you view it, don't you? I mean, the uh, LATAM are in the the Air France KLM Sky Team delta camp now so you know maybe mm. maybe that could be a complicating factor from from the other side um course, yeah. so so it, you know i do think it, that one would definitely be interesting uh to watch how that develops um as you say you have other carriers who are who are who will be looking for partners an interesting one that just developed uh, over the last few days was air malta you know a small standalone uh network Carrier, Emelt has always struggled um, historically uh, to make money. It's had a lot of pressure from uh, low cost carriers coming into coming into the country. But as an island, uh, you know, a national carrier is or a carrier within its own destiny, I suppose, is something that uh, and the Maltese government feel strongly around. So now there is a plan which has just been unveiled. So uh, the Maltese government has just unveiled a plan to create a successor carrier to Air Malta, and that kind of follows a similar similar line to uh, ITA ITA's creation in Italy uh, almost a couple of years ago where they basically run out of road for um 
finding ways to prop up and recover the uh, existing flag carrier. So successor carrier is established. Um, in Malta, the interesting thing to some extent is that they they're looking at and they're talking about an eight aircraft operation, which is you know uh, similar to what they have already. And you know this this is quite a central part for that project. They feel they've managed to get across to the European Commission, and the Commission hasn't really commented but, uh, but you know this process has been drawn up certainly in discussion with uh, the European Commission and they obviously feel that they've been able to demonstrate that you know eight is a, a kind of optimal size for the air yeah whereas you know what we have seen with some of the other uh, successor carriers is that you know part of the the quid per quo seems to be that it'd be a slightly smaller operation but I think if I was to guess what the European Commission's view would be on it or the uh, or the argument from that side is it's it's very much around what makes an airline a sustainable size and I think maybe you could argue that a aircraft is isn't going to be game-changing in that market so it is probably more about trying to uh, create a, a carrier that is that can be sustainable and doesn't need the financial uh, bailing out in a few years time. So that's probably what's driven that. With, and with Air Malta, there's, uh, you know, a desire to find a, a strategic partner as well. And it'll be interesting who some of these strategic uh, partners will be. And, and, you know, I don't think they will necessarily all come from within those big three airline groups. No, that's it. And it's it's, it's one to, to, to keep in mind. I think um, obviously the, the Maltese market is, um, it's sometimes quite distorted when you're looking at the data for it, because obviously a number of airlines base aircraft there, not least Ryanair with its, you know, Malta Air operation, which I curse the day they named it that because <laughs> the confusion <laughs> that causes is uh, is uh, is a bit frustrating. But yeah, um, yeah. So there are good reasons why airlines will base aircraft in in as uh, part of obviously the, the Europe's um, liberalised market. So um, you can base aircraft there and operate them. From other places, but yeah, it's um an intriguing market for that reason. But um, but certainly, as you say, um, it's not a in terms of the the core kind of you know national carrier type operations. I think it's um a relatively small operation, and for that reason, possibly, like you say, it's probably more likely to investors beyond the the big three might might look at it. So yeah, yeah, one to uh, another one to keep an eye on, um, and to get by the regulators, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So, as mentioned at the uh, top of the podcast, uh, we have both been out and about uh, over the past couple of weeks. And we'll talk a bit more about some of the uh, messaging and thoughts that we picked up from those conferences after the break. Hello, listeners. I'm Andy Mason, and I want to introduce you to Beyond Entertainment, a new podcast from Panasonic Avionics. Each week, we sit down with the best and brightest in our industry for a quick chat on the future of passenger experience. Everything from display and audio technology to in-flight Wi-Fi and killer digital content to meaningful market research. We're looking at what's now, what's new and what's next. So join us as we explore the passenger experience. Go beyond entertainment. Available now on your favorite podcasting platforms or on our website, panasonic.aero forward slash beyond entertainment so welcome back and uh, as you mentioned both myself and lewis have been out on the road a little bit lewis you were in madrid recently yes the iata world sustainability symposium it's the first running of that event i guess it 
it does reflect the the importance of that issue that I think this will become a, a sort of key part of IATA's conference slate. And I think it, you know, it was pretty well attended as well. And some uh, speakers from around the world, from, you know, a few, few airline CEOs from, from different regions. So, yeah, it was um uh, interesting event. I think what we know, the, the tough thing for anything like this is that the airline industry sort of knows what the problem is, sort of knows what sort of needs to happen to get there. But, you know, the, the concrete progress is the bit that everyone is absolutely crying out for. But we're kind of moving towards that phase. I think there obviously are things happening, but equally there are still debates happening around, and there will be, I guess, for but certainly in the short to medium term, I think about how how the industry is going to get there because we are, you know, what what comes across in in events like this is that um, there's pretty broad agreement that sustainable aviation fuel is is the big issue, is the is the one that is within reach, and you know. I think the key point about SAF is that it can power existing fleets because, you know, 2050 is only 27 years away. And you look at the investments airlines are making in fleets to, you know, to, to get the latest generation technology. You look at the order books at the big airframers. And I think even if there is, you know, remarkable breakthrough technology as, you know, Airbus is still talking about mid 2030s for hydrogen power, for example, you know, it's probably not going to touch the sides the fleet that could build up um, by 2050. So, you know, SAF is really the big talking point. And within that, there are multiple issues, really. And lots of these were discussed at the event, you know, from everything from where is that SAF coming from? So it's very biomass focused at the moment. Um, but, you know, a lot of people talk up the, the potential power to liquid. So, you know, essentially using carbon dioxide that's been pulled from the air. And of course, that brings up as well, um, a carbon capture which is part of that process and and the role that might play you know in, in simply pulling you know airlines you know essentially paying for carbon dioxide to be pulled from the air but but in terms of you know SAF the the other talking points are the big regional disparities so um, this came up in the IRS radio certainly in the context of um, Africa being a, a region where there's basically no progress at all on on building a a SAF industry. It's sort of similar noises from Latin America, really. The CEO of of LATAM Airlines Group, um, Roberto Alvo, spoke. And um, while LATAM Airlines has sort of set its own SAF mandate by 2030, there's basically very little movement in the region towards creating an industry. Whereas, you know, everyone looks to the US now as, and particularly California, where there's, you know, there's a lot of talk of carrot and stick approaches when you when it comes to SAF and there's certainly a perception that the US has gone hard on on carrot whereas in Europe and Anne Regal was there the CEO of Air France talking about you know the, the SAF mandates in Europe being a, a big thing but at the same time that there's a lot more questions about where that fuel is actually going to come from um, and and you know how who's going to pay for it and yeah, and then at the same time, there was a representative from the Asia region there and the, the chairman of Cathay Pacific, Patrick Healy. And he he was talking about how China is going to be. And, you know, China is, I guess, gearing up to announce um, its own SAF policy and regulations. And his view was that he reckons they'll get the mix right between carrot and stick. So incentives versus mandates. So, yeah, um, and many more talking points around SAF, which, you know, do reflect the fact that the industry is at, still at an early stage. but you know, there was also a lot of talk about, you know, this isn't just about 2050. To get to 2050, you need targets along the way and to meet, you know, even the 2030 targets when it takes 
three, four, five years, whatever, to get a staff plant up and running. That if things aren't happening now, you know, there's certainly questions around whether those targets could be met. Uh, one, one interesting point of view that a few expressed was that while there may be slowness in the near term getting you know, the SAP industry ramping up, there was a degree of confidence that what might happen is that in the early 2030s, for example, we may see a sudden flurry where there's always a critical mass where things really ramp up quickly. Um, it may be wishful thinking in some ways, but I think there may be historical parallels in in that sense that it's a tough getting this kind of industry going. But when it does get going, we may see, you know, you know, the energy companies really start to appreciate the, that this is the future and that, that there's definite commitment to taking the, the SAF, that we might see a, a big a big ramp up that happens quite quickly. Um, you know, within that, as we know, there are lots of challenges. So we know that airlines are happy to say, now we'll take all the SAF that's made, even though it's four times, five times the cost of, of jet fuel. But you know, if that was 10% of their fuel bill, would would they still be as happy to be taking, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, SAF at that cost? So, um, so I think, and we talked about this recently, didn't we, Graham? That 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 kind of there's a slight contradiction going on between you know airlines kind of do and don't want mandates and do and and think incentives are really important, but at the same time, you know, there there, there are arguments on both sides about why mandates work and why they don't, and unsurprisingly in a, in a global industry like this one the kind of uh, narrative isn't always that clear yes i mean you kind of need mandates to get things over the line and to get in the industry over the line or the wider industry over the line obviously <laughs> where airlines are also wary of having a mandate whereby they're they're the ones who, who have to achieve it and hit it and if it's not in their control they're the ones who take the punishment as well um that's right. And just just one other area that kind of stood out to me is this idea of residual emissions. So even you know, under the best case scenario, there's a widespread recognition that there's going to be a certain level of emission that that is unavoidable in the industry and and, and for airlines. And and there's the difficult conversations happening. There are still people that um, believe that offsetting needs to be part of the will be a part of the answer to this. And you know, there were um, airline leaders quite you know talking up some offsetting projects that really, you know, they, they feel are genuine and really do offset that carbon. Um, so that, that that is one to watch because we know there's really strong views um, from like Scott Kirby at United, for example, who doesn't particularly believe in offsetting. But, you know, whatever the industry does, and this, I guess, is inherent in the, the concept of net zero, um, there are still going to be emissions that are uh, need to be dealt with in some way. Clearly, carbon capture be part of that and carbon credits and these kind of things are, are all part of it and Amrigel talked about um, offsetting not really being something that works in, in in her market with Air France because the public opinion of offsetting is basically that it is just you know um, papering over the cracks really so uh, um, so they're, they're more focused on allowing people to pay for SAF for example rather than offering op- options and offsetting so it's a really fascinating area that Whichever way you look on this journey, it's um it's a complicated one. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely so. Um, you also got a chance for a bit of a, a, an update on the economic picture as well. Yeah, so I talked to Maria in Thompson, who, on the one hand, uh, leads the sustainability brief at IATA, is also still the chief economist there, and it was just a, a good chance to catch up really on what IATA's take is on on the the, the current outlook globally. Of course, um. 
you know, their analysis is very much looking at industry and regional level. So rather than, you know, we know we've talked about in, in I think in previous podcasts as well about, you know, there are you know, the individual airline levels. There's, there's, there's a decent amount of commentary suggesting that, you know, things not not looking terrible, but certainly that things have changed a bit in terms of, you know, this buoyant period coming out of COVID is is maybe fading slightly. But but certainly talking to, to Maria Thompson, the, the overriding message is that if anything, things look a bit brighter than they did in mid-year when she'd already talked about the industry being in a in a sweet spot, as it were. Um, I think underpinning that really are you know the continued strong recovery of traffic. There are issues with China's recovery, I think, not being quite as strong as anyone expected. But on the other hand, you know, at the start of the year, many people didn't expect China to reopen at all for, for some time. So you know, more markets are open now. Um, but at the same time, we know well that there are capacity constraints, which, while frustrating in, in some ways, realize does mean that, you know, in an industry that is historically known for maybe having overcapacity issues, it's currently operating in a way where capacity is very tight. So load factors are pretty decent. I think the last time I asked talked about these, they were basically back up, up at 2019 levels or or beyond. So, you know, that that's helping yields. Um, and, you know, even with you know, costs rising, so fuel costs coming up, is still a pretty um, attractive operating environment for many. And at the same time, um, she was very firm on the, the lack of um, unemployment that's um, accompanying the kind of general economic challenges around the world as being unusual but a factor that really does support the continued um you know strong demand for air travel combined with the the kind of strong traffic recovery and the capacity constraints um so essentially you know that the, the, all the narrative around pent-up demand she framed it in a slightly different way saying all oh, pent-up demand is is it means that people want to travel and if an un- unemployment is pretty low then enough people have the money to travel um, and, you know, will continue to do so. So, um, you know, I suppose at some point we need to stop talking about pent up demand. And it may be that as things are at the moment, that this is, you know, particularly because capacity is still got a little way to go to get to pre-COVID levels. You know, this kind of sweet spot will will continue. Obviously, you know, she was very clear that the downside risks outweigh, I think, the upside risks. I mean, you know, looking around the world, we know that the economic challenges in China reverberate around the world and and you know there are concerns about china's economy and uh, we've already seen that impact to an extent in cargo markets um, which um have been you know falling back sort of the pre-covid levels after such a strong period during covid um and you know we, we came close to a u.s government shutdown which you know could have unimaginable consequences um in many areas so you know downside risks are there we know the geopolitical situation in 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 many years um but, but, you know, that there's also a scenario where, you know, the world economy keeps ticking along at around 3% GDP growth. And, and actually the demand holds up and, and you know, airlines are doing relatively well despite the cost challenges. So, yeah, you know, a, a positive picture. And I think um, you also were at uh, a different event when you last week is it last week i'm losing track of time at the moment. but um but yeah you, you heard some some quite positive takes i think on the outlook there didn't you yeah absolutely i was at the uh, world aviation festival in lisbon and you know as willie walsh was speaking there and you know similarly had that strong you know feeling that the demand remained strong that, that, that generally they remained in a in a in a bright position and, and that was echoed you know even more emphatically by Emirates President Tim Clark. Um, They were both talking about fuel. That's one of the other elements. And fuel was 
you know big talking points and obviously that has uh, that has gone up price of oil has gone up and you know that is a factor now both uh willie walsh and, and tim clark talked about you know having an oil price of over a hundred dollars a barrel is something that the industry has shown it it can remain profitable now obviously able to do that uh, during a period of strong demand there is a question as to what happens if that demand tails mm. off and weakens but um but equally uh, i mean tim clark in particular felt that the oil price will settle back down so whilst being confident of an ability to to withstand high oil prices there, there was also a belief that you know because of the position the fragile nature of the economic recovery it would be in people's interests or the wider interests for that price to go to settle back down at some point one of the challenges that does emerge is the particular price of uh, of jet fuel and we've talked a bit about this before what's uh, called in the industry called the the crack spread where the difference between the price of oil and the price of jet fuel and that's at historically high levels isn't it it is yeah and it's um it's something i have been talking about for yeah, probably a year or, or more now it's um and it, it i think it partly comes from coming out of covid that while obviously the the trend jet fuel essentially tracks crude oil prices in a the sense of the, the trend it's that that spread which means it's more expensive than oil than than it historically might have been is is a frustration for the airline industry i think reading around it i think some jet fuel producers have you know had some challenges ramping up coming out of covid obviously the the strength of the demand for to jet fuel has perhaps been stronger than than expected given the strength of the the traffic recovery this year and as with so many different industries you know outside airlines and aerospace sector turning the economy off and back on is comes with challenges and i think this it partly results from from that so yeah that side of things is a frustration i think for the industry i think when we're talking about costs as well it's worth also um looking across the global industry really there are plenty of markets where you know with inflationary pressures and everything and a lack of workers so whether that be pilots or, or elsewhere we've, we've seen some quite eye-watering you know deals with unions certainly in, in if you look in the us for example where that have involved massive pay rises for pilots and crew and you know and that does mean that structurally you know a lot of airlines are now operating with with a much higher cost base a unit cost base and i think that is clearly okay when you know we're in such a buoyant demand period but I think um, if you're not in a market where you're at the same time, you know, able to aggressively grow and bring those unit costs down, I think it, it's certainly something that could become a theme looking into next year. It, it certainly does, inarguably, make certain airlines more vulnerable to a moderation in those in those yields and, and fares coming down. And um, in an environment where, regardless of what happens to fuel, almost they are structurally you know, lumbered with much higher costs. And as I say, that that isn't just the US market. There are plenty of markets where that's happening. Of course, you know, we, we know that with inflation that you know, airlines would argue they can, um, you know, fares you know, are supporting that. And that, fair enough. But, you know, we know as we go back to the fact this is a low margin industry and those challenges are certainly something to keep an eye on, I think. So plenty to keep our eye on going forward as ever. Lewis, that's all we have time for this time. Thanks for your time again. So our thanks to Panasonic Avionics for sponsoring the podcast. Do give the Beyond the Entertainment podcast to listen. A reminder, you can catch up on all the news and stories we mentioned in this podcast and much more at flightglobal.com. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, 
please like and review us. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes in your podcast feeds. And we'll see you again next time.